The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, beginning at verse 17. We'll be reading through verse 21 this morning. And I want to encourage you to notice one thing in particular about this portion of God's word. And that is to forsake the word of God is to forsake the God of the word. Those two things go together. To forsake the word of God is to forsake the God of the word. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, beginning at verse 17. The word of the Lord. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Josiah the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada Zechariah's father had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 20 this morning. The word of our God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came near and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? When they heard this saying, he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, 
Both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Think of a house. Uh, It could be the house that you live in, but any house will do. Now, unless you're thinking about a barn, the house that you are thinking of has quite a few walls in it. Now, imagine that someone just comes into that house and willy-nilly just starts knocking down all of the walls. What's going to happen? Well, you know what's going to happen. At least part of that house is going to collapse. And what once had been a beautiful home is going to become a complete mess. Now, of course, there are different types of walls in a house. Uh, Some are load-bearing, that is, walls that are structural. They hold up the weight of what's above them. And other walls are non-load-bearing. That doesn't mean they're not useful. Non-load-bearing walls are not holding up the structure, but they divide the space into rooms. And that can be rather useful for us. Um, Right now, it's all the rage that people want an open concept living area, right? So they're knocking down the non-structural walls, or in those cases where they want to take out a structural wall, they got to put up special beams and supports and everything so that the house doesn't cave in. They're knocking down those non-structural walls, and in some cases, even uh, those that are load-bearing, for the sake of opening up their house. But nobody wants an open-concept bathroom. Truth be told, uh, most of us don't want open-concept bedrooms either. Now, in this morning's passage, Jesus is not talking about a physical house, but he is talking about the house of our lives individually and our house of our life together as the people of God. And in this analogy that I'm giving you, the load-bearing walls are the teaching and the commandments of the Word of God. You dare not take those walls out. And the non-load-bearing walls are the traditions of men and human reason. That doesn't make them bad, but it is very important for us to know the difference between the load-bearing walls and the non-load-bearing walls, the difference between the commandments of God and those things that are simply human tradition. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, Sola Scriptura. Second, vain worship. Third, dealing with blind guides. And fourth, the heart of the matter. Let me give those to you once again. First, Sola Scriptura. Second, vain worship. Third, dealing with blind guides. And fourth, the heart of the matter. We begin with the foundational doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. Verses 1 through 3. 
Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Um, This account that we're looking at today is the last major event that takes place in the gospel according to Matthew in Galilee. Uh, Everything else after this, or nearly everything else after this, up until Christ's resurrection, is going to take place with Jesus on the move, or Jesus in or around Jerusalem. And furthermore, the people that are causing this controversy are not from Galilee. There's a delegation of important people, uh, scribes and Pharisees, who've come out from Jerusalem to investigate this Jesus. These Pharisees and scribes are looking for trouble with our Lord's teaching, and they think they've found it with the disciples. Christ's disciples do not follow their own particular tradition, that is the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes, about ceremonial hand-washing. The scribes and the Pharisees are not seeking information. That's important to get here. They're not just asking a question. Jesus, we'd love to have you teach us about this. Why are you doing something different? They're making an accusation. So please hear these words again as though they are an accusation, because that's what they are. These Pharisees and scribes say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? A little clarification. Uh, Please don't imagine that the disciples were terribly unsanitary and they never washed their hands when they eat. That's not what's going on here. What's going on is that this religious group, this small group of uh, elite people in Jerusalem, they had adopted a tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they ate their meals. Now, in the Old Testament, there are no general regulations that people are supposed to follow about how they wash their hands before they eat. But there are regulations for the priests. Right? So what the priests are supposed to do while they're serving in the temple, they have to wash their hands, and they have to do so in a particular way. And so what these religious leaders have done is they've said, we're going to adopt what the priests have to do inside the temple for all of life. We want to extend the holiness of the temple to our daily lives. Right? So we're going to practice this everywhere. That's what's going on. They come up to Galilee, and they see that Jesus hasn't taught his disciples to do that. So here's the first question I want you to ask yourself. What do you make of that tradition? This idea of taking that which was assigned specifically for the temple and making it a part of someone's daily routine. Here's something that we could easily miss. Jesus never condemns this tradition. That's an easy thing to miss. But actually, in this passage, Jesus does not condemn this tradition. Um, After all, the desire to be clean and pure before God is a good one. But that is not what this particular group of scribes and Pharisees were seeking to do. They were engaged in an external ritual precisely so they could be seen by other people. They were doing their acts before men so that other human beings would look upon them and go, boy, they are really pious. They are the holy ones. They were not doing this as a way of reminding themselves that God was seeking people with clean hands and a pure heart. 
Furthermore, they were condemning fellow Jews who weren't, in fact, doing anything wrong because they were not following this man-made tradition. Their condemning spirit reveals that these religious leaders, in fact, were not clean and pure before God. Right? Their very action that was signaling to other people, look at us, we're holy, was making clear that they were not. So what Jesus condemns is twofold. First, these religious leaders are judging and condemning other people for not following their man-made tradition. Second, and this is closely related to the first, they are treating this non-load-bearing wall, a mere human tradition, as though everybody was obligated to keep it. Right? That's the problem. It would be really wise for us to do the hard work of applying our Lord's words to our own lives. The reality is, is that there are many things in your life and many things that even we bring into worship that are simply human tradition. Now, remember, that doesn't make them bad. In fact, tradition is a way of accumulating wisdom across generations. It helps us do things that are really good. But it's vital for us to make the distinction between tradition and God's word, lest we condemn innocent people simply because they do not follow our traditions. Or, as we see in this particular passage, we start valuing the traditions even above God's word. Jesus, however, does not engage these religious leaders in a discussion of hand-washing. I think that's kind of an interesting thing to notice in this passage. Jesus never talks with the religious leaders about the issue they've brought to him. He, he's not willing to address them on their own terms. Instead, Jesus confronts the religious leaders rather directly, and he directly assaults their entire approach to religious authority. See, that's what the religious leaders have come out to see with Jesus. Is this Jesus movement going to support us and our desires in Judaism? Or is Jesus going to cause us trouble? Right? And Jesus is saying basically, well, I'm going to cause you trouble because I'm going to tell you what God has to say. I'm not willing to submit to your rules and your way of doing things. The religious leaders have asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus replies, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Our Lord's response is both confrontational and direct. Uh, in the original, it's very forceful on, on the emphasis. It's like Jesus is pointing his finger at them. I don't want to point my finger at you. That's not nice. Um, Jesus is pointing his finger at them and saying, you, as for you. Why are you breaking the commandment of God? It's very strong. And he's putting them on the defense and showing that he's the one in authority. Jesus won't even honor their tradition by calling it the tradition of the elders. He simply calls it your tradition. Through this confrontation, Jesus is laying before us the principle of sola scriptura. Now, Sola Scriptura is sometimes misunderstood as though it means that the Bible is our only authority. The problem with that is, is when you read the Bible, you discover that the Bible tells us that God put parents in authority over children and civil magistrates in authority over civil governments and elders in authority in the church. So God himself gives us other authorities. 
What the doctrine of Sola Scriptura says is the final and ultimate authority for everything is God himself. And that means you have to listen to God himself. And the way that you listen to God himself is in his word. That's where he speaks to us. And therefore, it does not mean there, there are no other authorities in the world. It means that when push comes to shove, we say that we must obey God rather than man. What Sola Scriptura actually means is very personal. It's not an abstract doctrine. It means that God and God alone is the final authority, the Lord of the conscience, and that we are to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. Now, Jesus gives an illustration of this principle um, that would have been crystal clear to all the people who heard him in the first century. Uh, regrettably, it's become rather murky to us. Um, I, I suspect that part of this illustration everyone gets, and the other part of the illustration not a single person here is going to get, not even Pastor Woods, unless he's been studying it recently, because we're just not familiar with this custom. Uh, what I want you to realize, first of all, I am going to try to make this illustration clear to you. What I want you to realize, first of all, is that it's an illustration. It's not the main point. The main point of what Jesus is saying is you have to have the word of God above everything else. That is simply to have God above everything else. We are to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. Furthermore, we should never seek to bind anyone's conscience to anything other than the word of God. As we say in our church's confession of faith, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. That's the main point. But let's see if we can unpack this illustration a bit so you know what Jesus is getting at. Verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6. Jesus says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And as I say, the first part of the Lord's illustration is crystal clear. Everybody knows honor your father and mother is not just one of the commandments in the Bible. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But please notice that Jesus ratchets it up a bit here. He adds something that comes from the next chapter of Exodus. And the one who reviles his father and mother, that is, the one who is crassly violating this commandment, he has to be put to death. He shall surely die. You see how seriously Jesus is taking the violation of the Ten Commandments? And he's saying that's what you, religious leaders, are doing. The second part of the illustration, the man-made tradition of dedicating property to the Lord, is frankly not clear to any of you. So let's see if this helps. Suppose you want to make a gift to the Lord by giving it to the church. What do you do? Well, you just give it. And that's it, right? You don't do anything. You don't, you don't draw attention to yourself. You don't make an announcement. You just give the money to the Lord. And suppose you were going to do this when you die. You're going to leave some money 
for the Lord's work by giving it to the church in your will. Well, it's the same thing. You write out your will, and the money goes, and you don't draw any attention to yourself. You don't need to get your name on a, a bench or on a stained glass window or anything like that that's going to say, wow, you've given money. But you know, it turns out that there are people in the world who do want to get public attention for the fact that they are giving money away. And I want to say, maybe that's not always bad, but it is always dangerous. So let me give you an example. I wonder how many of you have ever heard of the Giving Pledge. The Giving Pledge. The Giving Pledge is a movement started by some billionaires. I, I trust that most of you don't know many billionaires, so you may not have heard of this. But, but it's, a, it's a movement that started that these super wealthy people are committing to give away at least half of their wealth. And the thing is, they don't have to give it away before they die. They could just leave it in their wills, right? And um, there's actually a web page you can go to on the Giving Pledge, and you can see their pictures and a story about them and you know, what wonderful philanthropists they are and so on. Now, positively, there is something good coming out of this. There's these rich people who are using this publicity as a way of encouraging other super rich people to give money to charities and to philanthropy rather than just leaving billions of dollars to their kids. So that, that is actually a positive thing probably for society. But the bad side is obvious. They're getting credit now before human beings for donating wealth that they actually have use of until the day they die. Right? They can use the wealth. They're only promising to give away half their money by the time they die or after they die. Well, the ancient Jews had something like this, and you didn't have to be a billionaire to participate. They, they developed in the first century. This doesn't really seem like it's a very long tradition. They developed a practice where you could say, this courtyard I have, it, it, it's Corbin. It's dedicated to the Lord. And once you dedicate it to the Lord, you can keep using it. But when you die, it's going to go to the temple. Here's the really interesting twist. Because you've dedicated it to the Lord, no one else can use it, only you. You can't sell it and use the proceeds, for example, to take care of your needy parents. See what's going on here? Jesus is saying, you built up this man-made tradition that makes you look really pious because you're so generous in donating things to the temple, when in fact you get to keep using them, and your needy parents don't get the money. You're making void the commandment of God, honor your father and mother, for the sake of your man-made tradition that you think makes you look super pious. That's what's going on in this illustration. Since this is a pretty remote practice to us, none of you are going to do that, I, I want to give you an illustration that cuts a little bit closer to home. Perhaps it's not quite as crass, but, but it does touch on us in, in, a, in a way that's meaningful. So here's a question for each of you. How many sacraments are there? Well, given that Pastor Ryan has uh, just gone through the Heidelberg Catechism, I suspect, and even if you weren't here, most of you are going to give the good Reformed answer. There are two sacraments in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So here's my question for you. What do you do with your brothers and sisters in Christ who say there are seven? You say there's two, they say there's seven. What do you do with them? Well, here's something you may not have thought about. But the idea that there are only two sacraments is a reformed tradition. It's not actually in the Bible. 
It's a useful tradition. But see, Reformed Christians have come up with a definition of sacraments, and if you embrace that definition, a definition not in the Bible, if you embrace that definition, you're going to realize there are two sacraments. But if you change the definition, you're going to come up with a different number of sacraments. So what do you do with your brothers and sisters who say there are seven rather than two? Well, the correct answer is you love them. And you don't look down upon them as though we are right and they are wrong. The tradition is useful to us, but it's not intended to be something that says we're right, we're better, and these other brothers and sisters are somehow wrong. Now, you can do that through all sorts of things in your life and all sorts of things we do together in the church. Some things about styles of worship. They're not all neutral. I'm not suggesting you can just worship God any way you want. Jesus, by the way, is going to talk about vain worship in just a moment. What I am saying is we should realize there are a lot of things we do that we do because we experienced them as kids, our parents did them, our grandparents did them, our tradition that we've entered into does them that are not necessarily commandments of God. We need to know the difference between those load-bearing walls and those that are simply dividing up the rooms for our use. I hope that makes sense to you. I want you to realize this is not a minor issue. Jesus says the practice of the scribes and Pharisees actually means that they worship God in vain. Right? They're going through all this religious activity and it's utterly futile. God is not accepting their worship. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. The Protestant church in North America, whether very liberal or evangelical, doesn't get this. The Protestant church in North America, whether liberal or evangelical, tends to treat God as though God is excited and happy about any outward sort of worship at all. If anybody simply nods toward the living God with some religious activity in, in his direction, we treat it as though God must be thrilled with that. Don't criticize what they're doing, right? Because God's honored in it. You know where you're not going to find that? In the Bible. Right? That is not the way God's word treats worship. Beloved, the one piece place where you will not find such an attitude is in the pages of God's word. So please mark this well. Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. That is, they are play actors wearing a mask to make themselves look pious when they really wanted to be seen as pious by human beings. They were seeking their praise from men, not from God. Do you see why the doctrine of soul of scripture is not some abstract and dry teaching? If you rightly want to worship the Lord, you need to listen to him for the sake of understanding who he is and for the sake of understanding and doing what he calls us to do. If you are seeking your praise from men rather than from God, then no matter how beautiful your voice or elaborate your activities, your worship will be entirely and ultimately futile. 
And the only way that you can be truly seeking to please the Lord is if you are listening to his voice and prioritizing what he says over everything else. Uh, think about the words of Samuel uh, to Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. Right? And to listen is better than the fat of rams. Jesus is saying to prioritize man-made traditions over the word of God is to honor God with our lips, and such worship is utterly futile. Let me ask the husbands here a question. I'm going to put your husbands on the spot. But I put myself on the spot too. I am a husband. Uh, how do you show your wife that you value her deeply? That's actually a useful and important question for us all to ask if we're husbands. How do you show your wife that you value her deeply? There are actually a lot of good answers to that question. But here's one that none of us should miss. One of the principal ways that you will show your wife that you value her deeply is if you listen closely to what she's saying for the sake of understanding her. Not for the sake of answering her, but for the sake of understanding her. You know, the same thing is true with other people. And the same thing is true with God. Um, sometimes in contemporary worship, people talk about uh, worship is the thing you do before you get to the sermon and stuff. We've got the worship portion where we sing and we do stuff. And then we have the non-worship portion where we read God's word and listen. But I want to tell you the truth here this morning. Attentively listening to God so that you understand who he is and what he is like, and so that you can do what pleases him, is in fact at the very heart of Christian worship. It is saying God is worthy of my full and undivided attention. Perhaps because the scribes and Pharisees were refusing to listen to God, Jesus does not even explain to them any further why they are so wrong. Right? They refuse to listen to God. God stops talking to them. Jesus never explains to the scribes and Pharisees, although presumably they get to overhear what he says to the crowds, that ceremonial washing did not make them particularly acceptable before his Father who is in heaven. Instead, Jesus turns to the crowds. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. And Jesus called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now this short saying is kind of like a proverb almost. Uh, it's going to be explained in just a moment. For now, I just want you to grasp that Jesus is concerned that the crowds not be led away by these apparent religious authorities. That's important in our own day, too. Um, elders in the church and ministers, uh, we shouldn't take, pay too much attention to those out in the world that seem very influential, except when they might be leading the sheep astray. And then we have an obligation to step in and say, listen, that's not right. In fact, Jesus wants every generation of his church to know how we ought to deal with such blind guides who are in positions of religious authority. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, 
Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Well, we have a problem. Um, I may have mentioned this problem to you before, but it's important to remind ourselves of. When we read the New Testament, whenever we hear of scribes and Pharisees, we add hypocrites. That is, we read it through Jesus rebuking them. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. But that is not the way first century Jews saw them. The, The first century Jews in Galilee would have been deeply impressed when this religious delegation showed up. They had positions of authority. They were the ones wearing nice clothes. They should be deferred to. We do this actually in the modern world in various ways. Uh, a few years ago, I was visiting my daughter in the hospital. And I was actually coming back from a presbytery meeting. So in, instead of wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a sweatshirt or something, I was wearing a suit with a tie. I have never been treated so well in a hospital. Right? Everybody deferred to me. They were kind. They called me sir. They, they were prompt. I don't know if they thought I was an executive that worked for the hospital or something. But I've never been treated so well. Now, some of you may not like the fact that people treat others better based on how they're dressed. But the honest truth is, that's the way it is. We all tend to do that. Someone who's dressed like they're in a position of authority, or even if they're just wealthier, and they have titles, and they went to Harvard or Yale, or whatever it happens to be, we want to defer to them. Here's really the rub. We actually want their approval. Um, We'd all want to say we don't, but you know, like if a U.S. senator comes in here and they say, you are a wonderful person. I had the best conversation with you. You're like, yeah, that feels really good. And you want that at work and in school and so on. Just how we're wired. Well, that was true in the ancient world too. So when these important religious people show up, they're the ones with the best educations. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the nice clothing. Everybody in Galilee is going, oh, those are the people we need to impress. We need to defer to. And the disciples actually come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, don't you want to smooth things over with them? You, you know, when you gave that illustration, you offended them. Well, if they thought Jesus was going to try to smooth things over with the scribes and the Pharisees, they were terribly mistaken. Our Lord's response must have been shocking to them. Jesus says, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. So the first thing that Jesus wants his disciples to know about these religious leaders is God didn't plant them. God didn't send them. They are not his representatives. And the second thing he wants them to know is in due time, they're going to be rooted up and cast aside. Impressive before human beings, but of no weight at all before his Father who is in heaven. Now while we are not Jesus, a very important truth for us to remind ourselves of in many situations, while we are not Jesus, our Lord is revealing something to us about how we are to treat those who seem important in the eyes of the world. He actually makes that application, right? He tells the disciples, leave them alone. Those who seem important in the eyes of the world when they oppose the kingdom of God do not deserve a great deal of our attention. Having rebuked the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus does not even address them again. Instead, Jesus addresses first the crowds and then his own disciples. He will have nothing to do with these religious leaders until they acknowledge their sin 
and until they stop using their tradition to annul the word of God. Beloved, it really is okay for us to move on. You don't have to get fixated on the cultural despisers of Christianity who are making fun of us or attacking us or in some way standing in opposition to us. Don't worry about their fancy degrees and impressive titles. But as I've already said, the challenge here is one that we really do face because we actually want their approval. Right? In our hearts, we want, we want the culture despises of Christianity to have these positions of authority and positions of prestige to pat us on the head and say, you know, you're not like those other Christians. You're a lot better than they are. I really like you. You are reasonable. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? Don't worry about it at all. Just let them go. You do not need the approval of mere men, particularly those who are kicking against the kingdom of God. So just as avoiding vain worship requires us to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God, dealing rightly with the cultured despisers of Christianity requires us to seek our praise not from man, but from God. It really is that simple. If we seek our praise from God and we seek to live by every word that comes forth from his mouth, our lives will be fruitful for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Right? You will make a real difference both in time and in eternity. Or perhaps I should say God will make a real difference through you. Peter, as so often, now acts as a spokesman for the other disciples. In response, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter about what makes a person clean before God. Look at verses 15 through 20 with me. Verses 15 through 20. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now Christ's initial response, are you still without understanding, is actually pretty mild rebuke, but it's a rebuke nevertheless. Right? By this time, the disciples ought to have understood the heart of Jesus' own teaching better. And I think that points something to us. It presses on us a simple question. How well do we understand the spirit of our Lord's teaching in these matters? Right? So that even if we don't know exactly what this circumstance requires, we, we can conclude from everything we do know about Jesus the way we ought to think about this particular issue. To rightly grasp what our Lord is teaching, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus never condemned the tradition of ceremonial washing that the scribes and the Pharisees were engaged in. The desire to be clean and pure before God is a good desire. And perhaps, I use this hesitantly because maybe not, but perhaps if they had simply followed this tradition in their own practice, that is, they kept it to themselves as a reminder that God desires to have clean hands and a pure heart. This man-made tradition would have been useful for them. The problem is, is they were using it to puff themselves up 
and to condemn their fellow Jews who haven't done anything wrong. We should also note, though, as Jesus talks about how what we eat with our hands doesn't defile us, that in addition to this man-made tradition, there are, in fact, numerous commandments in the Old Testament about ceremonial cleanliness. And those commandments are holy and righteous and good so long as they are used in a right manner, which means out of a love for God and a love for neighbor. Right? So God himself cares about those external markers as a way of helping us pursue genuine purity of heart. But therein lies the rub. We're almost done here, and this is really the important point. Therein lies the rub. We need to have pure hearts before God, and the ceremonial laws don't give us that purity of heart. As Tom Wright puts it, the actions which make someone unclean, unfit for God's holy presence, are things like murder, adultery, fornication, and the rest. The motivations which point towards such actions give themselves away in thoughts and words which come bubbling up from the depths of the personality, showing that whatever outward purity codes the person may keep, the innermost self of that person needs to be changed if they are to be what God intended and what God wanted. Here and elsewhere, Jesus is addressing the deep question, which to be sure, many of his contemporaries, including many of the Pharisees themselves, were well aware of. How can the human heart be made pure? The point of what Jesus is saying then is that through his own work, God is offering a cure for this deep level impurity. And this cure cuts across what the other teachers of his day were offering. They saw the purity laws as the right place to start, and some of them were content to think it was also the right place to stop. Yet people who were pushing purity laws as a solution to the problems of Israel were, he said, like one blind person trying to show another blind person the way to go. Not only would both of them get lost, they are likely to fall into a pit together. Here's where we need to be so careful. We don't get to the right path by replacing the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes with a better tradition of our own. Because that tradition will not purify our hearts. We don't get there even by formally getting the critical doctrine of Sola Scriptura correct. The only answer to our desperate situation is the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is not only our teacher. Jesus is the subject of the teaching. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we receive transformed lives. And it is in him and him alone that we bear fruit for the sake of the kingdom. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Beloved, you could read a hundred scholarly books 
on how to rightly relate tradition to Scripture. And you might learn a lot of interesting and even useful things in those books, but they will not change your heart. The only way that you are ever going to follow Scripture to the glory of God is if you trust and follow Jesus Christ. Because what we need most is not a better method, but a new heart. And thankfully, that is our Lord's specialty. Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin, and he sets the prisoners free. May he do that for each and every one of you. Amen.